If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 9. The next morning, after hours of restless sleep, Corwin awoke to find her hand pressed hard against the goose egg and ragged wound just above her left temple. Eventually she opened her eyes and found herself staring at a broad, naked, sun-baked back striped by a hundred long white scars. Unable to stop herself, she extended a cautious finger to follow first one long ridge and then another. This must be a dream, she found herself thinking. Surely such cruelty didn't exist in the world. Soon she would wake in her bed in Cornwall. The maid would bring her warm chocolate, boiled egg and bread. She would eat, bathe, dress, and ride. It would be another glorious day in paradise. She would be exactly where she ought to be instead of in a strange bed, with a violent man, in the very middle of the sea. She heard the crew calling on deck, felt the light pouring over her shoulder, studied the man beside her and considered the notion that her life had become a nightmare and perhaps she should never have bothered to wake up. Devon Black slowly rolled over to face her, dark hair loose about his shoulders and midnight eyes watching her. What happened to you? She asked. Why did someone cut you to ribbons with a whip? That is nothing you need to think about, my lady. He said. Are you feeling ill? She nodded and the small movement made the world swim and her gorge rise. She closed her eyes and swallowed hard, unutterably glad her stomach was too empty to give up its contents to the bed. Devon rolled out of bed. She heard him open and close cupboards, then stole a glance to see him pulling on a fresh shirt and breeches. She closed her eyes, swallowed again, and asked. What happened to the crew of the Albatross? Did you rescue them? Now that he was fully dressed, he studied her. Then he said. Stay in bed while I collect food and drink from the galley. You need something to eat, my lady. If you rise I fear you will fall and strike your head again. I do not think you can tolerate another blow. But tell me what happened to everyone? She asked, again. Where are they? Did you bring them aboard? The crew took the long boats and left you to die, my lady. He said. I suspect the storm took them last night. Corwin stared at him disbelieving. If I am wrong and we happen across them on our voyage, you can be sure I will send them all to the bottom of the sea. He said. Then he was gone, exiting through the cabin door to a deck filled with men hard at work. Corwin would have laughed but her head felt like it might split open. The man she feared most on earth wanted to murder the men who had actually tried to kill her. How fantastic that was. The thought made her start to cry. She must have fallen asleep again because when she awoke it was to the smell of roast chicken and fresh bread. She saw Devon Black seated at the table dissecting half a bird and slicing up some kind of flat cake to accompany each bite. 
He had a flagon of rum beside him, and a wooden trencher filled with uneaten food waited on the table for her. She struggled to sit up, fighting off the wave of sickness that washed over her and the muscles that shrieked with her every move. When the blanket fell away to reveal her breasts, belly, and arms, she saw that every inch of her skin was covered in scratches, welts, and bruises. She threw her legs over the side of the bed and slipped off to stand unsteadily on the floor. Devon rose and came around the table to help her. Did you hear me mention you might fall? He asked as if she were simple. He helped her to sit at the table, then returned to his seat. He watched her take one careful bite after another. She wanted to tell him that she was too tired, too sick, and too hungry to ask how he had happened across her just as her ship sank. She wanted to explain that he would soon have to tell her how he came to have a ship and a crew, along with his title of Earl. He would have to explain how he was going to get her home. But now all she could stand to do was eat while her head swam and her body hurt. As she neared the end of her meal, Devon left the cabin, carefully closing the door behind him. When he returned what seemed like a long time later, he had two large buckets of steaming hot water, one in each hand, which he put on the floor. He left and came back with two more. Then he opened his cupboards to retrieve a large wash basin, soap, and squares of soft cloth. He filled the basin with water and moistened the cloth, then massaged the soap into a lather. He took one of her hands and began to wash her, blood and dirt giving way to her white skin. He seemed to discover new injuries with every move he made, so before long she took the cloth from him and began to clean herself. This was the closest thing she'd had in weeks to a proper bath. While she washed, he bathed as well. Stripping as if it were the most natural thing in the world to be naked before her, he lathered and scrubbed his skin, not minding the water that fell on the floor or spattered the table. He even took time to wash his hair, first sudsing it up with the soap, then ducking his head in a bucket to rinse it all away. When he was done, she watched him gather his hair and slice half of it off. What are you doing? She asked as he sawed at the locks. The shoulder-length strands became curls that coiled damply all over his head. He looked like a Roman centurion when he was done. We are not in London anymore, my lady. I prefer to wear my hair cropped at sea. He pulled on yet another clean shirt and breeches, then said. We need to wash your hair so I can get a better look at that wound. I cannot credit that it is still bleeding. He bade her sit with her head bent over the table. With her help he collected her hair in the basin, then slowly dumped warm water on the back of her head. He used the lavender soap to lather then a half a bucket of warm water to rinse. When she sat up she saw the water was painted red with her blood. He spent several minutes studying the swollen gash. I do not think you need to be sewn up. He said. The cut seems clean and unlikely to fester and it seems to be trying to close. Corwin was shaking too hard to respond now. The water had chilled, her bare skin was exposed to the air, and it was now early evening. When he let her go she rose, moved slowly to the bed clambered up to hide under the blankets. She felt Devon smooth them over her even as consciousness fell away. For a villain, she found herself thinking, he made a passable nursemaid. Devon stood on deck in a hard-blowing wind taking measurements from the stars in the sky. The ship was much farther south and east than he would have expected. As he returned his sextant and compass to their case, he realized he required a new destination in order to chart a course. Until now, he had let the captain of the Albatross pilot both vessels where he willed. Now Black had to choose where his ship would next make port. Were he a gentleman he would return the girl to London, but every fibre of his being rejected the thought, 
she was well and truly ruined now, and returning her to England would put his crew at risk. Her rigid brother and fool of a cousin had left her at Lord Norfolk's mercy and then put her to sea in a madman's boat. They certainly had no right to have her back. He had killed for her. He had pulled her from the sea. And she had taken him to bed. It was a bargain made whether she knew it or not. So far she had been docile, accepting his care with complacency because she was too injured to do anything else. But, in a week or so, when she was fully recovered, her questions and demands would begin. So perhaps he should simply set sail for England, returning the girl to where she wanted to be. Alternatively he could carry her to Virginia, sailing her into the Chesapeake Bay past half the English Navy and a dozen ships he had robbed over the years. There he could somehow track down her idiot brother who would probably want him dead even before the girl told him about what could only euphemistically be considered a rescue. Black shook his head and made his choice. He crossed the deck to his first mate who had the wheel for the night watch. He gave his orders all too aware that he was being judged and found wanting. Aye aye captain. Said Aubrey. His eyes were carefully fixed straight ahead. Black eyed the man's stiff shoulders and rigid expression. There was a great deal his first mate wasn't saying, and all of it was something Black didn't want to hear. You can tell the crew the girl is alive and well. Said Black, tersely. The man turned his head to look at him then, his expression communicating that he would sooner slit his own throat than discuss this matter with the crew. Aubrey and Black were of a height, and they had sailed together for twenty years. An enduring partnership like few in the West Indies, but this incident was likely to create an end to it. She's well enough and making no complaint. Said Black. And we did not put her to sea in that leaky tub. We simply drove it to the bottom of the sea with her aboard. Aubrey replied, then turned to face the horizon again. Black studied horizon with him for a moment, acknowledging the truth of the man's words, then looked up at the sparkling sky. When all was said and done he had the girl and he was determined to keep her. Aubrey and the whole ship could hang if they had a problem with that. His men followed his orders because this was his ship and he had chosen them, man by man, over the course of twenty years. He ran a tight ship, treated them like men, gained them great treasure, and they spent months of every year in port where they had families, and food, and a life they could never have enjoyed under another leader. Granted, they had never taken women captive or sold them into slavery. They had held men as hostages, taken them for ransom, and murdered many who refused to surrender when they had the chance. They had hung a crewmate or two for cowardice or thievery. But women they came across were held in the second mate's cabin and taken to port. They were given money and help in finding their way home. But surely his crew should understand this girl was of an entirely different order. She was his property, his share of the take from the albatross. She was a woman he had known, not one they had come across. This was a private matter and that was an end of it. But, what he feared they knew was that he had lost his mind. He had been driven from London after years spent plotting and maneuvering his return. They knew he held the girl responsible and that had wanted to punish her. They knew he had lost his way, and they were lost with him. They had not signed articles to serve under a lunatic. What they did not know and he could not tell them was that the girl was all that anchored him to the world. He had lost his birthright for the second time. By accident or no she had stolen it from him. Had she never drawn him out in a moonlit garden he would never have fallen afoul of Norfolk. It wasn't fair to hold her to account for the damage that had been done, but as he knew all too well, nothing in this life was fair. She must learn to accept her fate as he must learn to accept his own. Something simply could not be changed.
He opened his cabin to find it bathed in moonlight. She was sleeping, the lines of her face and shoulder painted in silver, the sound of her breath a whisper in the darkness. He undressed, slid into bed beside her, and she turned toward him, curling into his arms. He smelled her hair, caressed her, and let the feel of her against him wash the world away. Corwin woke in the middle of the night, heart pounding, head feeling as if it would split open at any minute. Her dream remained. Seething water, a ship falling apart, dead men dragging her down. She put a hand to her chest and tried to control her panic. She would give anything on earth not to be at sea. Are you all right? Black asked, propping himself on an elbow. Why did they leave me? She asked, staring up at the wood over his bed. I harmed no one. I paid for passage. I do not understand why they hated me so. Black said nothing for a long moment as if considering his answer. Women at sea make for bad blood on most ships. Men will fight to have them and fight to protect them. The adult-minded think they are Jonas that always curse a vessel. Why should they not give you to the sea, my lady, when they held you accountable for all their woes? Corwin shook her head in disbelief. The ugliness and ignorance of it all. The lack of honor and the cruelty. Would they treat their wives and daughters so? I cannot bear it. She said. He leaned down to kiss her forehead. Then, after a moment he tipped her head up and kissed her on the mouth. When he moved over her she wrapped her arms around his neck, feeling his warmth and her desire dull the edge of the pain in her head. As they made love she reveled in the strength of him and the fearlessness. She longed to be strong enough to set things to rights, powerful enough to withstand the brute evil of this world. There was nothing Devon Black could not do and nowhere he could not go. She desired his freedom beyond words. Devon Black rose as dawn brushed the sky. He dressed swiftly and silently, then shut his cabin door on the girl sleeping soundly. In the blue early morning, brisk winds filled the sails and a sky turning gold was devoid of clouds in every direction. Ah, clear sailing, every true seaman's first love. As Black walked his ship from stem to stern, he marked damage that should be repaired as they made their way to port. Then he went below to walk the gun deck and noted the powder and shot available for their next engagement. Down again to the crew quarters, he found most of the men asleep and some few played cards and ate as they waited for the morning watch. Every pirate ship ran by its own rules, so he did not care or even notice that no one rose as he walked by. Though he ran a tight ship, he was long since sick to death of men kowtowing to other men. He wanted not the appearance of respect, but the substance of it. He demanded his crew's best efforts at keeping the ship afloat, the hold full, and every man jack of them alive. He in turn made sure it was impossible to have a better life serving elsewhere. As he moved down into the galley he found the cook hard at work on the day's meal. The giant cauldron was boiling, bread was already in the oven, and the big fire box that sat in the very middle of the ship, running from the ballast all the way up to the chimney that vented on the uppermost deck, was hot as a furnace. The blacksmith with his own white-hot coal fire nearby, was pouring nails the crew would use to make some of the repairs required from the storm. Down to the hold he went then. It was filled to overflowing with goods collected in England and the gold and silver plate collected from the albatross. That the treasure had been meant for English garrisons would soon be fortifying piracy throughout the Caribbean filled Devon with no end of satisfaction. On his tour of the lowest deck, the one that sat just above the rock and gravel of the ship's ballast, he found no rats, no damp, and no fetid smell that warned of rot. Whenever he made port for long enough to unload the cargo, 
he and the crew took extra time to shift all the stone, drain any water, and re-cork the hull. The result was a ship free from vermin, that never needed to be pumped, and which didn't rot from the inside out. As he returned to the main deck he found himself thinking that perhaps his future lay in creating his own fleet. There was much to be made in moving merchandise, and the English, Spanish, and Dutch had so many ships he could steal. Corwin had awoken mid-morning with the first clear mind she had enjoyed for several weeks. While her head was still tender and she ached from all her injuries, she felt well and truly on the mend. After an hour or so spent waiting for her host to return so she could ask him for clothes, she had slipped from the bed, gone to the cabinet where she had seen him find such things, and opened it. There she found a tall stack of shirts, a carefully folded pile of breeches, and a half dozen pairs of shoes which she noted did not look often worn. She found the smallest shirt and breeches she could and pulled them on. The shirt fell to her knees, and the breeches required an inordinate amount of cinching in order to stay up at all. Once dressed, she looked in another drawer which seemed to be where he kept the log and his sextant. She took the book and sat at the table to read, unashamed of her desire to spy. She had not asked to come aboard, she had nothing else to do, and her rescuer had far too many secrets to make her comfortable. So did Devon find her when he returned to the cabin with food. He set bowls of stew and two small loaves on the table, reached over to capture the book, and deftly returned it to the open drawer. He slid it shut then sat down, speaking easily as he did so. I have not given you permission to rifle my belongings, my lady. He said. Corwin studied him. The few pages she had read in the log were dated for the last three weeks. Ship headings and coordinates and notations about the weather. She had learned only that his hand was easy to read, his markings formulaic, and that he took readings several times a day. Perhaps you will tell me how came I here, my lord. Black, eating, replied. As I recall your ship sank and I saved your life. He replied. How came you to be there when my ship went down? She asked, folding her hands as she continued to assess him. Because its master sailed into a storm and I followed him in. He replied, sitting back as well. He stared at the middle of the table, complacently waiting for her interrogation to continue to its inevitable end. Why were you within a thousand leagues of me? I had not thought us friends when we parted, and yet as my ship sinks you are there to rescue me. That is passing strange I think. Black said nothing, contemplating her words. Shall you not explain even now when I am entirely at your mercy? Have I not a right to know how I came to be here? As veteran of many conflicts, Devon allowed himself one more moment's peace before he laid into this one. As it happens, my lady, I had men watching your cousin's house. They gave me word of the ship you boarded. It was one of the many travelling under the Crown's escort. It was loaded with gold and silver plate meant as payment to merchants in Virginia. With you aboard it made a most attractive target. Its captain sought to flee me by heading into foul weather. I followed him as one might expect. Had he laid by and given me what I desired, his boat would be afloat now. But instead he sought to shear me off by driving deeper into a storm his leaky tub could not weather. He and his men left the ship aboard their long boats. We came aboard to take the plate. I thought you gone. Had you not emerged from your cabin and fought your way to me, you would be dead my lady. It was as clear and true a version of the story as he could tell, but it left out the madness that had consumed him every day of their journey. His need to take her at all costs. She had been his highest prize, not the plate. You hounded the albatross into its grave and almost killed me in the bargain. Black said nothing, 
That was a true statement when all was said and done. He might blame the albatross, but truth be told the ship might well have survived another dozen voyages under different circumstances. And now that you have me shall you make me your captive and your whore? In punishment of what sin? I had nothing to do with Henry's vendetta. He was a madman who seized upon me then seized upon you as a mad dog seizes upon anything that crosses its path. Why must I pay for the evil he has done? There is no fairness in that my lord. Black nodded, then said. I wonder if you think that is the way of the world. Think you all the beggars in London find the world fair? Do all the slaves torn from their nations and thrown into chains deserve their fate? He looked at her then, taking in her white face, the glorious mane of hair, the ill-fitting clothes she had found for herself. It was a heartbreaking scene but he had no heart left to break. What has that to do with aught? She demanded. I am calling upon you sir to be moral and to be good. I want you to do what is right. And you talk about these ills as if men did not cause them? A man such as you can make the world fair and just. I am asking you to do so. Black was surprised to find her driving to the very heart of the matter that had so consumed him for weeks. If I were so powerful as to be able to make the world as I wished it, I would be in England now. Earl, owner of my estates. Do you not think I wish that for you as well? She replied fiercely. Neither of us would be here if you had not drawn Lord Norfolk to my home. He said calmly. How could I know he would seek me there? You did yourself no service when you hurled a blade into his throat. You could have called him out. Perhaps you will recall that he shot me. Black shook his head. My lady, you wanted me to kill him for you and I did. It was not a bargain I would have made, but it is now well and truly done. If Norfolk were alive now, and you were still in England, tell me what of your cousin and brother then. Only I could do the job you gave me, and now the job is done. Corwin stared at him. His words were entirely true. She would have given anything to protect her brother and cousin, and now he simply demanded everything. Perhaps it was a fair trade since he too have given up so very much, but his demand was not one she could accept. I do not want to be your slave. She said. Surely you understand I cannot be owned. If you set cause for land's end, I will pay you well. I can give you back some of what you have lost in protecting me and my family. I have lands and money of my own. Black duly contemplated her offer. Like as not she did have assets. A minor noble from a minor family, she had acres of farmland, a cow or two. It was nothing in comparison to all she had taken from him and it was nothing compared to the value he saw in having her. We are underway to Port Royal where we will clear our hold and take on rum and tobacco. My men must be paid. They have women and children who rely on them and they are no party to our affairs. He said, playing upon her desire for fairness. Then you can afterwards take me to Virginia and I will make my way to my brother. She said. Surely you can accommodate this request. Black shook his head. And what of those riches you promised me in Cornwall then? Also, I must tell you that Virginia is rife with the English navy who has already branded me and my men pirates. Our ship is quite well known. And, were you to find your brother, what you would tell him would make me a particular target of the crown. What solution do you offer then my lord? Breakfast. He replied. These affairs will not be settled now my lady, no matter how much you might wish it so. I have not determined what shall be done with you. All things are in the balance. So what you can do now is eat. It has been too many hours since your last meal. The girl sat at the table but did not reach for her food. He saw she was too stunned to speak, to weep, to think. She had not imagined that he could be so cruel. Black left the cabin just a few moments later, taking his dishes while leaving her meal on the table. How quickly the tide had turned, 
he thought as he found his way below. He had expected a week of relative peace and had only been given a few hours. After tracking down his blacksmith and issuing new orders, he returned to the deck to take readings and confirm the ship was on course. Devon Black had delivered bad news on many an occasion. Telling a man he must lose an arm or was sure to die from an injury had become entirely commonplace. He had put countless recalcitrant men to the blade over the years, and hung more thieves and blackguards than he could count. They always expressed great dismay. But he knew himself to be judge, jury, and executioner on his ship and for any ship he took. Had he kept his place as earl, he would have been lord and master on his estates, allocating land, food, work, that determined who lived and died. He would have been tasked with dispensing the Queen's justice without fear of being challenged. Devon was well read, knew the work of the philosophers, understood the principles of justice, and generally agreed with what the Church had to say about right and wrong. But as a man of the world who would not be a martyr or fall under the thumb of another, his practicality ruled all. He would not compromise his interests again to serve this girl's desires, and he would not put himself, his ship, or his future at risk in service to what she thought was right no matter how stridently she made her case. She would learn to accept her fate as he had ordained it, just as others had before her. The second black left the cabin Corwin was on her feet. Ignoring the meal he had left behind she moved to the gun case. The rifles, muzzles pointed at the ceiling, looked quite lethal but too heavy. Her experience confronting Black with a blade had illustrated that she needed a weapon she could easily handle. At the bottom of the case she could make out muskets and pistols, each presumably with their own shot and powder. Those she could wield at close quarters. She could put a ball into Black's chest if he rushed her. A second into his brain if it were required. She could do that, she thought shakily. She could kill him if she had to. She would be owned by no man. She'd had her last mouthful of injustice, her last hour of being a victim to any man's whims. The lock on the gun case was large, heavy, and had she any notion about how to pick a lock she might have mastered it. But with a big enough lever you can move the world as her brothers had told her often enough. She just needed a long bar she could use to pry the lock off the box altogether. She moved to Black's cabinets and began pulling the doors open and dragging everything he owned out. Clothes of all kinds, old ship's logs, jewelry. Long strips of linen obviously for use as bandages, ointments in heavy jars, a well-read Bible, all ended upon on the floor. In one drawer she found personal papers and a letter on top caught her eye. Dear Devon, I cannot tell you how much I enjoy the gowns you sent and how much I miss you. You really are far too good to me. Corwin dropped the letter on the floor. How could anyone be so deceived by this monster? Venom was all that flowed in Devon Black's veins. Fine gowns? If he bought such a thing for a woman it was because he expected something far more valuable in return. Her salvation came in a long drawer where she found broken blades, damaged rifles, and a long heavy bar sharpened on one end and bent on the other. A crowbar of some kind she assumed. Probably used to pry open locked doors on ships they captured. Having seen such a tool used on her estates, she worked the sharp end under one of the rings of the lock and then used all her weight to pull back until the nails holding the ring to the wood let go. There before her were dozens of guns. Three were muskets, designed to deliver a very heavy shot, and almost too big to hold. Reluctantly, Corwin rejected these weapons. There were some dragoons, hammers too stiff to cock. In the end, Corwin selected a pair of matched dueling pistols. Light, well-oiled, they showed the burns of repeated use. How many men had died Corwin wondered, 
as a result of these weapons. She was careful to keep her mind blank as she loaded the guns. It was hard to imagine killing any man. But, if Black refused to allow her off his ship, she would murder him in cold blood. There was nothing for her on this boat, and it had not been so long since she had seen many vessels on the horizon. A week? Surely her brother had been keeping a watchful eye on her ship. Surely now that the storm was gone he would be looking for her. But, in truth, none of that mattered. She was done surrendering to fate. As the day faded into night, she found herself sitting with loaded pistols on Black's bed. Her back against the wall, her eyes riveted on the door, she waited. Devon watched his blacksmith install a lock on the exterior of his cabin door aware that not a single man on the ship was happy with him. They watched from the rigging, from the deck, from the hatches, all aware he had the girl in his room and he meant to pen her as he would a dog. Why did he need to lock her inside his cabin? She was a slip of a girl, a young thing, one they had seen him rescue from a sinking ship. Why did she need to be caged? What fate did she desire to escape so much? Devon knew the lock was just a precaution. The girl was headstrong, passionate, and there was no telling what action she might take as she faced a future without her brother, cousin, or her estates. He knew himself the lengths despair could drive a soul to. When the work was done, he dismissed the grim old man who had so begrudgingly attached a stiff iron hook to the exterior of the door and a knight of the frame beside it. He opened the door to his cabin. He was fully prepared for the tears and recrimination he knew he would face. Instead he found pandemonium. His cabin, lit by a single oil lamp in the middle of the table, had been torn apart. Everything in it had been dumped onto the floor. Even the gun case had been pried open. He looked toward her just as he heard the hammers click. He found himself staring down the barrel of his two favorite pistols. He shook his head. I think we have had this discussion already, my lady. Do not make me kill you. She said. Her voice was unsteady but the hands holding the weapons were firm. From where he stood he could see the powder and the shot beside her on the bed. For some reason he had every confidence the guns were correctly loaded. This girl did not do things by half measures. I might ask you the same favor. He said carefully, feeling his blood start to boil. She had offered to kill him twice and he had done nothing but care for her. Was she so easily shut of a desire to try and reason with him? Order your men to prepare a boat for me. The girl said. Food, water, enough to last a week. A lamp and clothes as well. Black relaxed against the wall of the cabin, aware that his men were drawing close behind him. This was far too much theater for them to ignore. Where are you planning to go? He asked. Can you imagine you won't die on the open sea? If you wished to drown you could have had your wish but three days passed. She remained silent. Black shook his head then said. As you wish. You have been nothing but trouble to me. He looked over his shoulder to find his first mate staring at him. Did you not hear? She wants a boat, a week's food and water, a lamp, clothes. Make it so. His mate relayed the orders and he heard his crew start to bustle about. Come he said, gesturing behind him at the deck. Your first command awaits. And I will let you keep those guns because I do not think you know how unpleasant waiting to die can be, and I do have some idea. She got out of the bed then, tramped over the mess she had made. He obligingly backed away, wondering just how long this fast would run. She had wanted to live badly enough not so long past. She couldn't truly want to die now. She was making a statement and thus he must make one also. His crew, 
waiting for his order to stop her, watched as she exited the cabin. He gestured at the hastily loaded dinghy as if offering her a golden coach in which to ride. It was already tied to the ropes and ready to lift over the side of the ship. She looked around at all the faces that surrounded her as she crept toward it. She turning her guns this way and that as if she thought her two shots could kill them all. Black saw her searching for some softening, some sign that they would help her. He saw his men's eyes flickering from him to her and back again. They would not move without his order. She had to learn there was no one to appeal to on this boat. These men had sworn themselves to him as leader. Here his word was law. Once she was in the boat, he nodded at the men who manned the ropes and pulleys. They dutifully moved her over to the side of the ship and began lowering her down. Looking over the side he saw the water below her was smooth black and running fast because they raced before the wind. For a girl on her own in a tiny dinghy, it must seem like the abyss. Corwin sat down, guns still in her hands though they were of no use now, and scanned the moonlit horizon. She saw only a pale rim of light that marked the far-off edge between sea and sky. The lamp on her boat illuminated the hull of the vast ship she was leaving. The lamps above Devon Black and his crew painted them shadows against great white sails. The men moved and whispered as they looked down. They seemed to find her despair a curiosity. Was she choosing death? Was she making the same arrogant mistake the crew of the Albatross had made? She could see no ships anywhere and once she was in the water she knew Black's ship would race away. She would be left with only the water and a canopy of stars. But what was her choice? Should she lose everything? Give up everyone she had ever loved? How could the man who had rescued her, one who had seemed like a god, be so cruel? Why had he not lied to her? He could have told her he was taking her anywhere and she would have believed him. Her tiny boat stopped inches above the water, and she looked up. Something heavy fell from the ship, dropping onto Corwin and knocking her to the bottom of the boat. She let go of her weapons as she tried to pull the net off. While she scrambled about, the dinghy was swiftly pulled back onto the ship. As men lifted the net away Corwin finally found one of the pistols. She stumbled to her feet and leveled it at Black. He stood with his arms folded across his chest as though daring her to fire. He looked irritated, as if he were watching the antics of a misbehaving child. He lifted an eyebrow and she looked about herself, found a sea of men each poised to take her at his command. In despair she found the gun sliding round to point at her own temple. She could not bear any more. In one swift move Black slapped the gun out of her hand and then brought his hand back across her face. The gun discharged as it struck the deck, the shot splintering the wood and making men jump back. Corwin dropped back into the boat, clutching her face, stunned by the force of his blow. Get the other gun. Black ordered fiercely. He picked up the weapon that had fallen to the deck, took the one a grim Aubrey gave him, and tossed them both overboard. Then he swept the girl into his arms and carried her back to his cabin. Black watched the girl sitting in his bed weep. Had she really meant to kill herself? When he had seen that white face peering up at him in the darkness he had thought she had finally come to her senses. She had too much resolve, too much passion, to surrender her soul so easily. She would not quit life like a coward when so much remained to be won. Then again, perhaps she had lost so much she felt she could give up nothing more. He finally found the words he needed. My lady, it will come as no surprise to you that I have killed hundreds of men, but I am happy to kill one more on your behalf. He was pleased that she was startled enough to look up. 
That brother of yours will be easy to find at his new post, and bluff as he is, I think we can agree he is no match for me. So the next time you make an attempt to kill me, I suggest that you succeed. Failing that, you commit to surviving this voyage lest I send Captain Benjamin Chase to hell just as soon as I can possibly find him. She stared at him, green eyes piercing in her dead white face. I swear I shall see you hang one day. Black smiled. His success at conjuring her rage was so bitter and so very sweet. Only if you live. His eyes took in her tangled hair, the new bruise, the destruction around them. He stood and watched her draw back. I am very glad we finally understand each other. He said. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond 5.